2: Welcome back, friend. I'm glad you can join me again for the second half of our collaboration Easter special. I'm Shane Waters, the host of Foul Play Crime Series. If you haven't listened to part one of this episode, I suggest you do so and then rejoin me here. Remember, all podcasts are listed in the episode show notes, along with a link on where to find them. Now that that's out of the way, let's get on with it. As we continue our adventure, venturing into a grove of talking trees, the trees sway gently as they share ancient tales and riddles. And it's here we meet our eighth character, Whisper a mysterious figure shrouded in a cloak made of leaves.
1: Hello, traveler. The trees hold secrets of ages
3: past. Listen carefully, and you may uncover
1: hidden wisdom.
2: As we converse with Whisper and the talking trees, we gain invaluable insight into the history of the enchanted Easterlands, and the interconnectedness of all life. Walking out behind a talking tree is Brittany and John from Wicked Deeds with the first story of our journey.
4: Nicholas Aliverdian was born on July 11, 1987 to parents Diana and Jack, who he described as alcoholic and abusive. During his youth, Nick's parents ended up separating, with he and his siblings going with mom. In 1996, Diana married a man named David Rossi. Together, they began building a new life, which one would hope to be free from abuse now that Jack was out of the picture. At this point, you might think that now was the time for Nicholas to flourish, but sadly, that's not the case. Nick continued to struggle and suffered from a variety of mental health issues, including narcissistic personality disorder and attention deficit disorder. As a child, he was said to have episodes, I guess you would call them. He'd yell, scream, hit people, and spit at them.
5: Yeah, but I wonder how much of that was influenced by his dad.
4: I mean, especially when you're a child and you have very little sense of right and wrong. But even saying that, his behavior eventually reached a fever pitch with David, who supposedly beat Nick during a trip to Disney. Shortly after this incident, around the age of 12, Nicholas Aliverdian was entered into the Rhode Island foster care system. Once in foster care, Nick began staying in something called the Night to Night Placement Program and was bounced all over the place. But a little while after his placement, he started going to the Rhode Island State House fairly regularly, which, by the age of 14, landed him a position there as a legal page. Nick described his time at the State House as a quote, "place I could be safe from maltreatment and suffering end quote." But even with his newfound sanctuary, Nicholas wasn't out of the woods and claimed he was still being placed in homes where he was yet again abused.
5: I understand kids aren't always taken seriously, but I wonder if he tried to reach out for help.
4: It's possible that he did, but Rhode Island authorities have stated that there was no proof that this abuse took place.
5: I guess you have to take it with a grain of salt, though, because I'm sure there's plenty of abuse that goes undetected.
4: Oh, I totally agree. But let me just give you a little bit more insight into what Alaverdian was alleging. In an article with Turn to 10 in 2011, Alaverdian stated, quote, I was subjected to torture, beatings, assault in various forms. I was refused to contact anybody, anybody at all, end quote. And that same article goes on to state that Alaverdian claims he was transferred to several other states, including Florida and Nebraska, where instances of abuse continued to occur until his release from DCYF in 2005. Now, let's fast forward to 2011, which seemed to be a big year for Alaverdian and his battle against abuse. He filed a federal lawsuit against DCYF, numerous facilities and individuals, and the states of Florida and Nebraska. In 2013, that lawsuit was settled by the parties involved, with most of the specifics regarding the settlement being kept private. Now, you might be asking, well, what happened between 05 and 2011? The answer to that is, there's a lot.
5: For some reason, I have a funny feeling about this guy. Why is that? I mean, he seems to have had the cards stacked against him since the beginning, but if all that alleged abuse and mental health issues went unchecked, it kind of sounds like a recipe for disaster.
4: Well, it turns out that Nicholas Alaverdian wasn't the societal champion that many articles made him out to be. In 2008, Nick had made his way onto police's radar for pinning one of his female classmates against the wall of a stairwell while groping her and masturbating.
5: Forget what I said. I've lost all sympathy for this guy regarding his past. Mm Mm-hmm. I understand lashing out when you're a kid, but now that you're an adult, you can't be pulling that shit.
4: Well, later on that year, Aliverdian was convicted of those crimes, and he was forced to register as a sex offender.
5: I guess that's a plus.
4: Yeah, and just to note, Nick did end up trying to get a retrial, but that was totally shot down by the judge. Now, let's jump ahead a bit more. While living in Rhode Island in 2010, Aliverdian ended up getting arrested for domestic simple assault against a female partner— And when taken into custody, he supposedly smashed his head against the bars in the back of the cruiser and wouldn't stop until the cops pepper sprayed him.
5: This guy's not only a dirtbag, but he's a drama queen.
4: (laughs) You're not kidding. (laughs) And just to note, he ended up pleading no contest to the domestic charge. Now, this portion is a little foggy, but it seems as though around this same time, Nick had also gotten married and shortly thereafter, divorced.
5: I can't imagine why.
4: <laughs> right. And <laughs> after that divorce, Nick married another woman for them to only divorce less than a year later. She went on to say that Alliverdian was extremely abusive during their marriage.
5: I mean, as bad as this guy is, I still can't help but think that some of the stuff that he's doing is because of who his father was.
4: Yeah, absolutely. But it doesn't mean that because his father was this way that he has to act in this way too.
5: Right. I agree.
4: Now, fast forward again to around 2018, 2019, when Alaverdian decided to move to the UK, where he met a woman named Miranda, whom he married in early 2020.
5: So, am I the only one getting you vibes here? Do we have Joe Goldberg fleeing the US to London to try and leave his past behind? <laughs>
4: <laughs> it certainly seems that way. Aside from Alaverdian and Miranda's marriage, 2020 was also marked by two other significant events the COVID-19 pandemic, and Nicholas's alleged diagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Alleged diagnosis? Yes, alleged. In early 2020, alaverdian had reached out to American media outlets to inform them of his diagnosis. Totally something a normal person would do, right?
5: Yeah, I mean, obviously.
4: Well, shortly after sending those transmissions, on February 29th, 2020, Nicholas alaverdian allegedly succumbed to his illness. His obituary stated, quote, his last words were, fear not and run towards the bliss of the sun. At the time of his passing, the room was filled with the sounds of the end credits for the 1997 film Contact by composer Alan Silvestri, a film and score which held special meaning for Mr. Alaverdian. end quote. Okay,
5: that had to be written by him.
4: I mean, I honestly would not doubt it. And that's only a little snippet from the obituary, too. I suggest anyone listening to give it a read. There was also an amusing comment in a Providence Journal piece that stated, quote, As his supposed death neared, Alaverdian pressed the storyline that his life as a crusader for children, now about to be cut short, was news that needed reporting. He insisted as much to a journal reporter and editor who chose not to write about him, much to Aliverdian's angry persistence, end quote.
5: Okay, hear me out for a second. Either this guy actually died, only to rise again with the intent to lead a cult revolving around the 1997 cinematic masterpiece Contact, while Alan Silvestri followed him around tickling the Ivories, or Nicholas Alaverdian is not only a registered sex offender and domestic abuser, but also a con man that attempted to fake his own death.
4: Well, in late 2021, a man going by the name Arthur Knight had contracted a serious case of COVID-19, which landed him in a hospital in Glasgow, Scotland. But just as you may be thinking, Arthur Knight was not who he claimed to be. Shortly after Alaverdian's alleged death, U.S. authorities were on to his little scheme and were on the hunt to bring him back to the States for even more crimes that we haven't touched on yet.
5: I don't understand why he would even tell U.S. media sources that he was sick and dying when he could have just changed his name and lived abroad and probably went under the radar.
4: I mean, honestly, who knows? But... Once Arthur Knight was in the hospital, authorities were able to connect with Interpol and hospital employees who, through various means, were able to confirm that this Arthur Knight guy was, in fact, Nicholas Aliverdian. Around this time, Aliverdian was arrested, and after pulling some shenanigans, he was eventually locked up and has remained in a Scottish prison ever since.
5: Please tell me we're trying to extradite this guy.
4: Yes. It turns out that the U.S. is seeking extradition due to several charges— including rape and a variety of financial crimes. As of March 6th, 2023, there was supposed to be a hearing for his extradition, but he refused to get in the prison van to be transported to the courthouse. So throw
5: him in the van.
4: Uh, Honestly, I just don't get it. But due to this, that hearing seems to have been postponed. So by now, Alaverdian has been fighting the extradition for almost a year and a half, And he's clearly not an easy person to work with, as he's supposedly gone through upwards of eight lawyers during this battle and claims this whole thing is a conspiracy against him.
5: So not only is he a dirtbag criminal that's a drain on society, but he's also wasting everybody's time, even while in custody.
4: Yes, and you honestly never know if the truth is coming out of this guy's mouth or not.
5: Well, I mean, he kind of seems like a pathological liar, so he's probably making half it up anyway. I just hope the extradition happens, that way his victims can see some justice and hopefully get some closure.
4: I completely agree. And the justice that Alavirdian's victims deserve, which was once thought to be lost due to his deception, is finally back from the dead. Now that's what I call a resurrection.
2: As we continue our journey, we discover a quaint little bakery nestled in the heart of a sunflower field. The air is thick with the aroma of freshly baked bread and pastries. And it's here we meet our ninth character, Baker Sunflower, a cheerful and hard-working baker who bakes loaves of bread infused with the warmth of the sun.
1: "Welcome, traveler. Our bread is made with love and sunshine, symbolizing the nourishment of life. Please, enjoy a loaf and let it energize your spirit."
2: grateful for the sustenance we savor the warmth and flavor of the sun-kissed bread feeling reinvigorated for the next leg of our journey through the baker's door comes justin from obscura a true crime podcast with a story fresh off the pan
6: Listener, one of the confections most associated in my mind with Easter are marshmallows, sometimes different colors. They seem innocent enough, but what you're about to hear is less than sweet. September 4th, 2010, Mashpee, Massachusetts. Brent McFarland was having a good weekend. His fiance, Catherine Kate Gill, is visiting for the weekend. She traveled for it. This despite Tropical Storm Earl causing torrential rains and heavy winds.
7: The major storm gathering for a coastal strike. Hurricane Earl, now a massive Category 4 hurricane, is pushing a wall of wind and water across Puerto Rico and towards the mainland with sustained winds of 135 miles per hour. Major East Coast cities, including New York and Boston, fall squarely within the storm's so-called cone of uncertainty. Well, how bad could damage from this hurricane be? Sam Champion has our report.
6: But by the time it reached Cape Cod, the storm lost most of its stander.
8: As the sun rises over Nantucket Sound behind me, Early morning reports show that Hurricane Earl, which had been downgraded to a tropical storm as it approached Cape Cod, caused very little damage. A few hundred power outages, some downed power lines and some minor flooding last night as it became clear that Earl was not going to be the storm that some thought it could be.
6: The two make the best of it. They spend the night drinking. Noises. Strange, gurgling noises. Brent wakes up. It's pushing 2 a.m., and Kate isn't in bed with him. Anyone with a significant other knows this feeling, and the usual preceding feeling to establish where they are. McFarlane slips out of bed to satiate this desire. Every second from here out is important, because soon he will discover Kate Gill on the floor choking. Her throat lined wall-to-wall with a large marshmallow.
3: 911 recorded line. What is your emergency, police, fire, or medical? Animal, please! What do you need? You need the police?
9: No, I police. I need an My
3: girlfriend's girlfriend choking. Your girlfriend shot you? No, oh, she's choking to death. Okay, what's the address?
6: Upon finding her, McFarland dials 911 and... Unfortunately, for all parties involved, Dispatcher Sergeant Rhonda Colburn answers the phone.
3: What is she choking on? She what? Do you know the Heimlich?
6: The dispatcher here seems lost, even clueless.
9: What is your name? Yes, I'm dressing mouth She won't What's the
3: phone number? Beep. Is she breathing at all? No,
9: she's not breathing. She's not talking behind, please.
3: Alright, the ambulance is on its way. Kate? How old is she? She's 39 years old. Kate! What open her mouth? She won't open her mouth. She's seizing. She's seizing. She's not breathing. Okay, she's not breathing. Okay. All right, what was she choking on? I can't hear you because you're on
9: microphone. She's 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 she's
3: getting Okay. What was she choking on? I don't know. Okay, you need to calm down. Okay, the ambulance is on its way.
6: McFarland could use some help. Directions on how to save his choking fiance. Okay.
3: okay. Where is she? In the bathroom? Uh, kid. No, she's on the kitchen floor. She's on the kitchen floor?
9: Yeah.
3: Okay. Does she take any medications or anything?
9: I have no idea. Yep. Okay. Okay. I have no idea. Kate, Kate, don't do this to me, Kate. Kate, can you read it?
3: Is she breathing?
9: I can't tell.
3: You can't tell?
9: Her uh, tongue is swollen.
3: Her tongue is swollen?
9: Uh. How's her colour? Huh? Her lips are blue.
3: Her lips are blue?
9: She said, come go right away there. She, is, she, does she have a history of seizures? We have no
3: idea. You have no idea. Hey, 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 Do hey. you think she took anything?
9: No. Well, we, I don't know. You have to come over here, right away. All right, Robin, help! Hey. You at all? Uh,
3: I think she's just right. She's She what? She alive. Okay, the is on its way.
6: To make matters worse, the EMT response has been delayed, delayed by as much as two minutes, because a, the city of Mashby allegedly failed to post adequate street signage down the very road McFarland lives. B, torrential rains. The combination is making it difficult for rescue workers to find Brent's home. Well,
9: but you know where I'm at. Hey, don't, hey, don't, don't. you cook it? it? Yeah, okay. 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 us get out. Hey, 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 Open all, way. Open all, way. Open all, way. Open all
3: way, all way, all way, all way, all way. Brent. What? Is that her making that noise?
9: That's her, she's not trying to breathe into her.
3: She what? I can't hear you.
9: I'm trying to breathe, I'm trying to give her CPR, but she's not responding.
3: You're trying to give her CPR? She's barely... She said she was choking on something. She's
9: choking on something, trying to clear her throat. And she's barely, like, she's barely breathing here. Kate. Kate. Please go with
6: CPR, Bill. Kate. Kate. Don't go, Kate. Don't. No, Kate. No. As you can imagine from the audio, Catherine Gill didn't make it. A food ball formed in her throat, and it would later be reported that Kate was intoxicated at the time. The infuriating dispatcher, Rhonda Colburn, resigned after that December. She admitted she didn't follow protocol. There were accusations that Colburn couldn't be bothered to even try to help McFarland save his fiance. Even local sheriff James Cummings wasn't on board with this dispatcher. The Boston Herald reports Cummings said he accepts full responsibility for the actions of the dispatcher who during a 12-minute 911 call did not provide instructions on medical procedures, including the Heimlich Maneuver and CPR. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's Journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's Journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about MyLifeInABook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook Using her voice recordings, it's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventure, and the challenges she overcame. The book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Personally, I love my life in a book. I tried it with my mom, and I've heard stories I'd never heard before because... You know, they just never came up naturally in conversation. It's easy to use, and my favorite part is it's given me more of an excuse to talk to my mom more. You know, it's not always easy to come up with those on your own. Listener, check out mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code OBSCURA for 10% off today. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash obscura.
2: As we meander through a maze of hedges, adorned with delicate roses, we come across our tenth character, Thorn, a protective and courageous rosebush guardian.
1: Greetings, traveler.
10: My duty is to safeguard the beauty and harmony of this garden. Remember, even the most delicate flowers possess strength and resilience.
2: With Thorne's guidance, we start to navigate the maze and come across two good friends of mine, Jerry and Tracy, from Hillbilly Horror Stories, and they are just dying to share a story with us.
7: Hey guys, my name's Jerry. And Tracy. We are Hillbilly Horror Stories. Now, we don't do a lot of true crime on our show, but for this Easter collaboration, I actually had one that's semi-close to home that I was made aware of uh, four or five years ago. And I actually went to the house where this uh, murder took place.
1: Did I go with you?
7: No, you did not. Oh. Um. So I thought this one, you know, for being an Easter story... This was the perfect one to do, okay, and uh we're gonna jump right into this. This is actually known around the country as the Easter Sunday massacre, and it happened in Hamilton, Ohio, which is a little city that's uh kind of adjacent to Cincinnati,,
9: mm-hmm.
11: so
7: it's kind of in that in that area man uh it's it's a tough story, and it's uh one that we've only got ten minutes to do, so we're gonna jump into some. Some story on this. So what happened was, I'll give you the basics. Easter Sunday, March 30th, 1975. That's when 41-year-old James Rupert fatally shot 11 members of his own family in his mother's house at 635 Minor Avenue in Hamilton, Ohio. Now, that is, from my understanding, still the largest one family massacre to ever happen in the United States. That's 11 horrible. people from the same family. So what was the deal here? What's, what's the problem? Well, let's talk about James Rupert, first of all. He had a troubled life, like a lot of people do. That doesn't mean you go out and kill your entire family, but just to give you some stuff that he dealt with in his background, when he was a kid, his mother, Charity, told him that she would have preferred that he would have been a daughter. Because that's what she wanted. But instead, she got him. Wow. His dad, Leonard, was very abusive, had a really short temper, and uh, he didn't really care much for his two sons. Leonard actually died, though, in 1947, and that's when James and his brother, Leonard Jr., were actually 12 and 14 respectively, were left without a father. Well, Leonard Jr. became the father figure in the family, and he constantly picked on James during their upbringing. He would often taunt him about being a weakling, and at 16 years old, James was so dissatisfied with his home life, he ran away and attempted to commit suicide by hanging himself with a sheet. He was unsuccessful and returned home.
1: Wow, that's terrible.
7: As an adult, he was only 5'6 and weighed 135 pounds. He was a very average man, Mm -hmm. just kind of plain, kind of quiet, and uh, he's lost a lot of money that he did have in the stock market crash of 73 and 74. So at 40 years old, he's living back with his mom, who was constantly harassing him about how he didn't pay rent and he needed to have his own place and she was going to evict him. You know, he's already down on his luck, 40 years old, already had a tough life. And to add insult to injury, his brother, Leonard Jr., had an engineering degree he had his own uh, home that he bought in fairfield which is the neighboring city Uh to hamilton and uh he had eight children and everything seemed to be going great oh and uh, leonard jr's wife Uh was at one time james's girlfriend
1: man oh man so it's an
7: ex-girlfriend that his brother married what
1: in the heck is happening here
7: so about a month before the massacre James had inquired about buying silencers for some weapons that he had while he was buying some ammunition. He also started doing some other strange stuff, like on March 29th, 1975, which was his 41st birthday, witnesses had seen him doing some target practicing with his twenty two pistol and a twenty two rifle along the banks of the Great Miami River in Hamilton. That's a no-no. You can't do that out in public.
1: No, I wouldn't think so.
7: The night before the murders, James actually went out drinking, which he did almost every night. He went to the 19th Hole Cocktail Lounge, and he talked with an employee there, 28-year-old Wanda Bishop. She had later went on to say that James was frustrated about his home life and was tired of his mother talking about evicting him all the time, and he needed to solve the problem. Hmm. He left at the bar at about 11 o'clock. He came back, stayed at the bar till about 2.30, and uh, Wanda Bishop said she asked him, well, did you solve the problem? He said, no, not yet. The next day is Easter Sunday. Leonard Jr., his wife Alma, and all of their eight children, ages 4 to 17, were at dinner at the Minor Avenue house, mm-hmm. his mom's house. James did not come down. While they were down there doing the regular Easter stuff and doing an uh, Easter egg hunt and stuff in the lawn, James stayed upstairs in his room. But at about 4 o'clock, he loaded his three hundred and fifty seven Magnum, his two .22 caliber handguns, and a rifle, And then he went downstairs. That's where Charity, his mom, was in the kitchen preparing sloppy joes. Not the most traditional of Easter meals. Yeah. But that's what she was doing. Gross at any meal. Leonard Jr. and his wife, Alma, were in the room. Most of the other kids were in the living room. But so it was those three in the kitchen. And James walked down and he shot Leonard Jr. in the head, then shot his wife, Alma, and as his mom lunged at him, he shot her twice in the chest and once in the head. He then turned a the corner to the other room and he killed 11-year-old David, 9-year-old Teresa, 13-year-old Carol. Then he went into the living room where James shot his remaining nieces and nephews, Anne, who was 12, Leonard III, 17, and Michael, 16, thomas 15 and the youngest john who was four he then sat on the couch and he waited three hours before he called the police and said someone's been shot and when the police showed up he was waiting out there on the porch for them they said you couldn't hardly even walk through the small house Because there were so many bodies in the floor. And this is a small house. I bet this isn't a 700 square foot house. Oh my gosh. And there was 11 bodies in Mm. there. Sad situation. Obviously, um, he wasn't right in the mind. He said that he committed every one of the murders in less than 10 minutes. Wow. I've heard other reports that said less than five minutes. On Wikipedia, it says two minutes. But he said it was 10 minutes he ends up getting a trial they had to move it 175 miles north yeah. because they said they didn't think he would get a fair trial he was convicted of 11 murders now they had in a short period of about four year period had did away with the death penalty in ohio so he wasn't he didn't get the death penalty wow he got 11 consecutive life sentences in jail Back in eighty one uh, or eighty two, I should say, he got another trial, and they ended up only convicting him of three of the murders. How
1: is that possible? Well, they
7: convicted him of three of the murders, and the other ones were by insanity. I don't know how you can kill uh, some no. by insanity yeah. and not. You but, can't.
1: You can't dif- dif- right. differentiate that at all.
7: But he um, he was in jail. And he tried to get parole back in uh, 1995 when he was 61 years old. Uh, That was turned down. It was again turned down when he was 71 and again when he was 81. He was denied release on all those. But he actually died last year, June 4th of 2022, of 88 years old of natural causes.
1: Oh, my gosh. That is crazy.
7: But that... Is the story of the Easter massacre. And yeah, you know, I was telling you when I, when I found out about that story about five years ago, I used to do a lot of work in Hamilton. Yeah, uh-huh. I had a, a location that I worked at in Hamilton and somebody told me about it. And then I got the address and went over there and checked it out. And it's just, just a basic little, little two story white house. that sits, uh, you know,
1: are people living um, in that house? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. And actually
7: it's, it's funny because I, I saw a um, news article. It was a video. And they talked to the woman that lived in the house because they were curious if she had any paranormal activity or anything in the house that, had, you know, ever disturbed her or if it bothered her living there. And this was, I think she moved in, uh, when she was living there, when they did the interview, it was about 20 years after the massacre. So it was uh, 1995, I think.
11: Mm -hmm. She knew, though, right? She
7: knew, but she said that she didn't experience anything at all. And, um, you know, that was... It was just strange knowing that that happened but she did, it didn't affect their day-to-day lives.
1: Dude, I don't know how you could do that. How could you knowingly know that and just be okay to I don't know I cannot do it. I don't
7: know cuz you know blood soaked into the oh, wood gosh, yeah. and everything on yeah. the floors Mm-mm. and so.
1: That's a horrible story.
7: Well, all right guys, thank you so much for listening to us and uh I guess happy Easter. <laughs> so- bok bok.
2: As we finish navigating the maze, we soon arrive at a tranquil glade, where the air is filled with soothing sounds of chimes. It's here we meet our eleventh character, Windy, a playful and spirited breeze that carries the laughter of children on its wings.
3: Hello, traveler! Let me whisk you away on a gust of adventure and show you the wonders
10: of
4: the enchanted Easterlands from above!
2: Embracing the thrill of flight, we soar through the sky with Wendy, marveling at the breathtaking views of the magical realm. Flying up here, on a glider, is Diane from History Goes Bump, and it looks like she has a good story to share.
1: He was born as Edward Alexander Crowley on October 12, 1875, but most people know him as Alistair Crowley. Crowley was famously an occultist and magician who was known for his sex orgies, and many celebrities, writers, and artists claim to have been inspired by his writing and life. Some people may even be aware that he lived in a haunted house in the Scottish Highlands, but few are familiar with a point in his life when he faked his own death. Do what thou wilt
12: shall be the whole of the law
1: was a famous
12: saying of Aleister Crowley, and the man lived accordingly. Crowley formed his own spiritual philosophy and religion around those words known as thelema. But long before that, Crowley was born to Christian parents who were very wealthy. He was sent to Christian boarding schools and then preparatory school. His father died of cancer when he was eleven, and Crowley inherited a substantial amount of money. Acting out at school became the norm for him. And while he had considered his father his hero and friend, the relationship he had with his mother was strained. She eventually started calling him the Beast. Imagine that, calling your child the Beast. (laughs) That's terrible. Around 1895, he started calling himself Alistair, which was the Gaelic form of Alexander. Around this same time, he started having sex with prostitutes, contracting both gonorrhea and syphilis, and he engaged in same-sex relationships as
1: well. In 1896, Crowley had his first mystical experience, and this would open up a whole new world for him. He was already studying philosophy, but now he focused more on the occult and black magic. Crowley joined the Order of the Golden Dawn in 1898, although that group wasn't crazy about his libertine way of life. Alistair began to travel the world and study more magical practices in places like Mexico, Japan, Hong Kong, and Paris. He also wrote prolifically, especially poetry. And he loved women in all these places, eventually marrying Rose Edith Kelly in 1903. Rose and Crowley would go to Cairo the next year where they got involved in some pretty bizarre stuff. Over several days, Crowley claimed to hear the disembodied voice of an entity named Iwas, who dictated the Book of the Law. This was the birth of Thelema, and the book stated that humanity was entering the Aeon of Horus. And Crowley was going to be its prophet. By 1909, Rose and Crowley were divorced, and he began forming relationships with other women, and he would refer to each new woman as his Scarlet Woman. Crowley joined Ordo Templi Orientis, or the
12: OTO, and he wrote liturgy for that group and continued developing rituals for Thelema. He also continued working sex magic and other rituals, and many people started referring to him as quote, the wickedest man in the world. Crowley reveled in the way people talked about him. By April of 1930, Crowley had moved to Berlin. He met a woman named Hanny Jager, and she became his new Scarlet Woman and magical partner. The couple had a troubled relationship. Hanny was a Californian 19-year-old, an artist, a model, and described as a spitfire. Crowley gave her the magical name Anu, but mainly called her Monster. Lovely. So he's the beast, and she's Monster. Great. And perhaps that is really what he thought of her, because he felt like he had to do something desperate to get away from her. A paper called The Empire News even reported that the couple had a very public
1: fight in a hotel in which Hanny went into hysterics and threatened to kill herself. Alistair Crowley had become good friends with the poet Fernando Pessoa, and this friendship was always described as strange. Pessoa was a prolific writer who was one of the greatest poets in the Portuguese language. But he was also quite shy. He translated works into Portuguese, and many of these were by leading theosophists like Helena Blavatsky. This connection to theosophy was probably what made the two men good friends. Pessoa even translated Crowley's hymn to Pan into Portuguese. Crowley was tired of Hanny, or she had left him, and he figured if he died, then he could get away from her for good, or maybe even punish her in some way. The
12: specifics around their relationship aren't well known. Some say that she left him.
1: Others say that he left her. Clearly, this was a very turbulent relationship. Crowley traveled to Boca do Inferno in Lisbon to fake his suicide. The location's name translates to Mouth of Hell or Hell's Mouth due to its rare scenic cliff formation, which made it a perfect spot for the beast to supposedly off himself. I'd say right into (laughs) Hell's Mouth. Basoa and Crowley devised a plan for Crowley to write a suicide note and leave it at the top of this rocky outcrop under his signature cigarette case to lead people into believing he had jumped to his death. The text from his suicide note has been immortalized on a plaque that is attached to part of Hell's mouth. It reads, Can't live without you. The other mouth of Hell that will catch me won't be as hot as yours. Oh my word. It's
12: a great way to say <laughs> goodbye world. Here I go.
1: Pessoa's job was to hand over the note to authorities and feed the papers information about the note. He claimed that the note had been decorated with occult symbols, and he also claimed that he had even been visited by the ghost of Crowley the day after he jumped off Hell's mouth. Now, you gotta love that the proof he's giving to the
12: newspapers is, oh yeah, the other day Crowley's ghost came to me, so that's how I know he's dead. (laughs) Cue the dramatic music. Many of the local papers announced that Aleister Crowley was missing, while others said he was dead and at his own hand. It seems, as I was reading all these different papers, Kelly, nobody really was quite sure what was going on with him, but they knew one thing, he was definitely missing. To add more fuel to this mysterious fire, the Oxford Mail reported on October 15, 1930, that a London medium named A.V. Peters had stated, that, quote, while in the trance it was indicated that mister Crowley was dead, and that he had been pushed over the cliff by an agent of the Roman Catholic Church. Catholics had made attempts on mister Crowley's life before, mister Peters stated, and he was expecting to be attacked. The place was described as being round like a crate of a volcano, and mister Peters added that it was in the mountains near water. A considerable part of the seance consisted of personal details as to mister Crowley's appearance, occupations, and health, For the purpose of verification, of course. Of course. (laughs) So according to this medium, Crowley didn't kill himself. He was pushed.
1: Murder! Murder! People likened the death of Crowley to that of Greek philosopher Empedocles. Legend claims that Empedocles threw himself into the volcano Mount Etna. The talk around Crowley's death was all very dramatic, and we're sure that he enjoyed every minute of it. The plan was for Crowley to be dead for quite a long time, but the ruse only lasted three weeks and it was all due to Crowley's ego. A large exhibit of his paintings was being held at an art gallery in Berlin in October of 1930. This would be one of only two showings that occurred in his lifetime. The temptation to hear all the adulation about himself at the showing was too much to resist and Crowley showed up unannounced.
12: I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall there, and hear what everybody had to say as he walked through the door. Were there gasps? Were there other people going, oh, we knew he was going to be doing something like this?
1: (laughs) All the drama.
12: There are those who believe that Crowley didn't pull this stunt to annoy Hanny or get rid of her, but rather as some kind of publicity stunt. And that is very possible. Whatever the reason for faking his own death, it's not surprising that a controversial and flamboyant man like Crowley would do such a thing. Crowley did die for real on December 1st, 1947, at the age of 72. His legacy continues on today. His ashes
13: are buried in, of all places, New Jersey. (laughs) You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: Upon returning to the ground, we find ourselves in a cozy library, where thousands of books line the walls, each containing tales of imagination and wonder. Here, we meet our twelfth character, Paige, a wise scholarly bookworm who guides us through the endless stories that await.
1: Welcome, traveler. The pages of these books hold the key to countless worlds and limitless possibilities. Explore them and unlock the power of your own imagination.
2: As we peruse the shelves with page, we delve into fantastical stories and lose ourselves in the boundless realms of imagination, discovering that the greatest adventure lies within our minds. As we turn the corner, Andrea and Claudia are waiting to share a story from Judgy Crime Girls.
11: What would you do for two million dollars?: Pretty much anything. <laughs> just ask. Anything at right. all. Yes. Who do you want me to kill?: <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, a lot of people would do just
10: about anything to strike it rich these days, right? But one Minnesota couple took it to the next level. It was a typical October morning in Moldova in 2011 a police officer on his morning jog spotted a dead body in the bushes but there were no signs the person had been killed the officer looked for bullet holes or signs of stabbing but found nothing yet the corpse was already decomposing
11: this is why i don't run <laughs> i don't i don't run either unless there's food
10: i run towards food <laughs> The police officer called in the body, and it was transported to the morgue. There was a passport and a hotel key on the corpse that identified him as Igor Vorotanov. Authorities contacted Irina Vorotanov in Minnesota to ask her to come to Moldova and make sure the body was her ex-husband. She hopped on the first flight to Moldova, accompanied by a U.S. embassy representative. Official. One look at the body, and she confirmed that it was indeed her ex-husband, Igor. And after identifying the body, Irina and her sons started planning the funeral. But instead of having the body brought back to the United States, Irina opted to have him cremated in Ukraine, which I think is kind of a weird choice.
11: It is, but I mean the carry-on charges... That they have these days.
10: That is true. It's easier to carry an urn, I guess. But what made it even weirder to me, anyway, is that she was not even his wife anymore. She was not the next of
11: kin. And you said his body was decomposed. Yes. So I'm just, they're going off this name badge. The passport and the hotel key. Mm -hmm.
10: So just before they divorced in 2010, Igor had named Irina the beneficiary of his life insurance policy he took out with Mutual of Omaha, his $2 million life insurance policy.
11: Convenient. Mm-hmm.
10: I don't know why she was on there still, Andrea. Either they parted best of friends or maybe she had some blackmail material on him. I don't know. Or they were getting ready to pull off one of the biggest, most elaborate frauds in the history of the crime. Don't know.
11: Could be. Da-da-da.
10: Plot twist. (laughs) A month after the funeral, Irina collected the insurance money. And most people in her shoes would have tried to at least maybe save it or invest it and not be flashy with it. However, Irina is not like most people, and she began moving the money to different bank accounts in Switzerland, Hungary, and Moldova. Oh, honey,
11: keep your money.
10: (laughs) Well, nothing screams innocent like a Swiss bank account. (laughs) (laughs) You know that's right. So Alcon, the oldest son of Igor and Irina, traveled to Moldova for vacation. At a party thrown by a family friend, Alcon discovered his father was alive and well. (gasps) No! Yes.
11: Living under a new name, Nicole Potoka. You have got to be kidding me. For two years. And never called his son? No, no. That is so sad. Yes. While someone
10: was indeed cremated and buried in Lakewood Cemetery... It was not Igor. So who was cremated? Who they use?
11: I don't know.
10: Who was it? I don't know. The discovery in June of 2012 sent Alcon on an emotional roller coaster after finding out his dad is still alive. His attorney told the prosecutors that Alcon was innocent and this was all Irina and Igor's fault. He actually had to experience a funeral service for his father, only to find out later that his father was still alive. What kind of people put their own children through that kind of emotional turmoil? No idea. The whole scheme pretty much came undone, unraveled, because Alcon and his fiance flew to Moldova too many times. Every few months, they were going, and it caught the attention of federal investigators. So around Thanksgiving in 2013, Alcon and his fiance were flying back to the U.S. when Customs and Border agents detained them in Detroit. They received a tip from an unidentified person that something fishy was going on with them, and they took their possessions and started looking through their stuff and trying to figure out what was going on. As they looked at Elkon's laptop, they found pictures of Igor that were taken in April and May of 2013, proving that he was alive. I want to know who that
11: nosy person
10: was. (laughs) It was me. (laughs) (laughs) This is where Irina and Igor learned a very valuable lesson. Trying to cut their eldest son out of the money was definitely not a good idea because he flipped on them faster than a burger on the grill. You know, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) In exchange, prosecutors lessened the charges he faced, but they needed just one more thing and they needed to know for sure that Igor was alive. So Alcon called his father and put him on the phone with the Feds. Igor created a whole scenario about being kidnapped and being held for ransom now. Of course, nobody believed him. No, I mean, who would? No one. (laughs) Everyone believed the story was designed to make Irina look innocent. Well, it didn't work. She's currently in prison. Before her sentencing, she claimed to be a destitute felon and was angry that Igor seemed to have gotten away with everything because he was still in Moldova and nobody could find him at that time. Elkham was not happy either that his father had not been brought back to the States. Even as he faced prison time, him and Irina were ordered to pay back the $2 million. Oh, good. Yeah. I don't know how from prison, but they jointly have to pay the money back. How are they going to pay that back?
11: I don't know. They're in prison.
10: But at last, Igor was extradited to the U.S. and charged with mail fraud. He was sentenced to prison time along with his family in July of 2019. I guess the lesson here is don't fake your own death. Be yourself. <laughs> it's just bad. It's not good. And no one no one will believe you. When you really do die.
11: (laughs) Especially the life insurance company. They're not going to believe you. Agents are jaded. Yeah. Insurance agents. True. You are not dead. (laughs) Not today. Prove it.
2: (laughs) As we leave the library, we finally arrive at a magnificent meadow where the vibrant colors of countless butterflies paint the sky in a breathtaking display of beauty. It's here that we meet our thirteenth and final character, Papillonia, a graceful butterfly queen who embodies the essence of transformation and renewal.
3: Greetings, Traveler my subjects and i represent the cycles of change and growth that define the spirit of easter may you carry the power of transformation within you as you continue on your
9: journey
2: as we bid farewell to papillonia and the enchanted easterlands we reflect on the unique characters we've met and the wisdom they've imparted our hearts brimming With gratitude and wonder, we follow the rabbit back to our world, forever changed by our whimsical Easter adventure. But before this adventure ends, I have one more story for you. This one from myself and Wendy at Foul Play Crime Series. It was a brisk spring day, Thursday the 21st of March 2002, in Seton Carew, on the east coast of England. John Darwin wasn't due into work until later in the day, so decided to blow away the cobwebs by going out for a paddle on his canoe. He left the large house that he shared with his wife, shouted a quick hello to his neighbor who was outside in his front garden and crossed the road to the beach, where he entered the sea. Later that day, John failed to turn up for his shift as a prison officer at the local prison. Then he failed to return home. So what happened to John Darwin?
0: John's wife Anne raised the alarm. She was a doctor's receptionist and had been at work when John left the house. There was no note, but she noticed that his canoe was missing when she arrived home. The huge search operation began, and was frantic with worry. She called the couple's two sons who immediately made their way to their mum. It was a tense time. There was no sign of John. It was like he had just disappeared off the face of the out. The Coast Guard rescue teams and police aircraft searched through the night. They found a double-ended paddle like the one that John owned, but there was no sign of the canoe, or of John. In fact, it would be another few weeks until the shattered remains of John's red canoe were washed up on a local beach. But what had happened to John was a mystery. Or was it?
2: You see, on the outside, the couple were doing very well for themselves. They both had good, steady jobs. They had built up a large portfolio of rental properties. They had just moved into a new house. But on the inside, things were not looking so rosy. The reality was that the couple were riddled with mounting debt, with mortgages on multiple properties, along with the renovations that were needed on the new house that they had just purchased, plus the refurbishments on the bedsits in the house next door. Their luck had run out. They just couldn't afford the repayments any longer. And without a serious cash injection, everything would soon come crashing down around them. So, of course, they looked at their options and took the most logical next steps. They put their rental properties on the market to pay off some debt and free up some equity. Wrong. Wrong. What they actually did was fake John's death so that Anne could claim on the life insurance to get them out of debt. What could go wrong?
0: So John is missing. Anne is playing the distraught wife act very well. Their sons think their dad has been lost at sea. Police and coast guards are wasting huge amounts of money and resources searching for John. And where is John? Well, after spending a few days camping, which he decided was too difficult, and then holding up in an bed and breakfast a few miles up the road, John is living next door to Anne, in one of the couple's bedsits. And guess what? Conveniently, there is a secret door that leads from one house to the other. Yes, really. Don't worry, he's grown a beard, so nobody will recognize him.
2: It's all going so well, exactly as they planned. So, all Anne has to do now is claim the life insurance money, pay off some debt, and then... Well, then what exactly? John isn't going to be able to just come back home as if nothing has happened, is he? Not to worry. It's all part of the frankly ludicrous plan that they cobbled together.
0: So, back to the insurance claims. Without a body, it's really hard to claim that John is dead. Of course, John is furious. How dare the insurance companies make such crazy demands? He couldn't understand why they wouldn't just take Anne's word for it and pay out without a death certificate. John would make Anne call the companies, begging them to pay the claims, telling them she desperately needed the money, but the answer was still no. Then a year later, at an open verdict... John was officially declared dead, and Anne received £250,000, that's around $300,000, from the insurance companies, which allowed her to pay off the mortgage debt and get back on her feet. The end.
2: Hold on, not so fast. It's not the end. In fact, the story gets even crazier from here. Are you ready? So John has officially been declared dead. Tick. Anne has received the insurance money. Tick. The couple's, well, now Anne's debts have been cleared. Tick. Now it's time for John to come back from the dead. Oh no, that's more tricky.
0: Time ticks on. John continues to live next door, sneaking through the connecting door during the day, sometimes joining Anne overnight but always able to scurry back next door if there are visitors or the police decide to stop by for a cup of tea. Eventually, the police lose interest, the case is closed and Anne can take some time out to relax and reflect on what has happened. Of course, the couple's sons still think that their dad is dead and when their mum announces that she has decided to go and live in Panama, they are confused and have some concerns. But she convinces them that she will be fine and off she goes to hunt for property before she moves. So how is John going to come back from the dead? Well, firstly, he steals the identity of John Jones, a baby born around the same time as John Darwin, who died in infancy, just 34 days old. Then he applies for a passport before heading off with Anne on the 14th of July, 2006, to start a new life in Panama.
2: John and Anne arrive in Panama, Dizzy with excitement, they got away with it. They can now be together again properly and start a new business. And this is where they make a fatal mistake. While meeting with real estate agents, they happily pose for a photograph for the agent's portfolio. A photo that will later be spread across the front page of every newspaper in the United Kingdom. A photo that would prove that John was not dead, after all. A photo that would prove that John had faked his own death. But for the moment, they are still living in their bubble of happiness.
0: Just ten months after that first visit to Panama, John and Anne purchase a property. They want to run it as an activity centre for holidaymakers. Anne sells the house in Seaton Carew and moves to Panama to join John. They did it. Everything they planned has come to fruition. Yes, they left their sons without a dad, but hey, they have an amazing new life. Maybe one day they can explain to their sons what happened and they will forgive them. Or maybe not.
2: And then, just when everything was going so well, Panama threw a wrench in the works. They changed the laws for anyone wanting to obtain a visa. So, Now in order for John to live and work in Panama he had to have his identity confirmed by the British police. Oh, now this was a problem because John Darwin was legally dead. And John Jones, well, he died when he was just 34 days old. It was time for a new plan. John had a brainwave. All he had to do was go back to England, walk into a police station claiming he had amnesia, and then be declared legally alive. Simple.
0: Well, actually, no, that's not quite how it works. I mean, John tried. He returned to England, walked into West End Central Police Station in London, and said he didn't know who he was and could they help. Of course the police helped. They managed to identify who he was and called his sons to tell them their dad was in fact alive and well. Well, what John didn't know was that just a few months before, the police had reopened their inquiry into his death as it seemed suspicious. And it was not long after he returned to the United Kingdom that the picture of him standing with Anne and the real estate agent in Panama was released by the press. Game over.
2: John and Anne were arrested, and on the 23rd of July, 2008, They were both convicted of fraud. John was sentenced to six years and three months. Anne was sentenced to six years and six months. And they had to repay nearly £600,000, or $720,000, to the insurance companies that they defrauded. Hello again, dear friend. Our journey has now come to an end. If you've enjoyed this collaboration, I hope you will try out one of the others we've arranged My Bloody Valentine for Valentine's Day, and A Nightmare Before Halloween for Halloween. Up next are the holiday collaborations for Mother's Day and Father's Day. So if you know of a good podcaster you'd like to see join us for the collaborations, please reach out. We are all a group of podcasters wanting to create something unique for your listening pleasure. So your feedback is welcome. Remember, all the podcasts you heard from are in the episode show notes, along with a link to where to find them. I've been your Easterlands guide, Shane Waters. Until our next adventure, stay vigilant and don't let anyone's death fool you.